You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, good evening, Stonegate. Uh, I would humbly ask you to tailor your, uh, your expectations after that introduction. Um, I have no idea what to say after that, so uh, yeah. Well, I just want to start off by saying I love this church. I love everything about this church. I love being here in this church, and Jesus loves you. It's an amazing gift of grace to get to be here and worship with you and to do things like what we're about to do and talk about Roman Catholicism. It's like when Rodney asked me to lead this equip night, I was like, really? <laughs> the, the Stonegate wants to talk about Roman Catholicism? As big as it is, it still cares about the theological depth and, and this, the precision of the gospel, and I just think that's amazing. And so I love being a part of this. Now, let's talk about why this is important. If you were to poll the average Protestant today and ask them why they're Protestant, it's likely very few of them would be able to give you a very clear answer. It says, R.C. Sproul once said, the vast majority of people who call themselves Protestants have no earthly idea what it is they're protesting. Maybe that's you. You're like, yes, I'm Protestant. And if I were to ask you why, you'd be like, uh, I don't know. That's the, that's the team I chose. Kind of like picking to root for the Rangers over the Astros. Or if you're a soccer fan, Manchester United over Manchester City. Sure, we have our favorite team. We might even be diehard fans. But yet, don't Protestants and Catholics play the same game even if we're in different stadiums? I mean, come on. We are both passionate about the sanctity of life. We are both passionate about the purity of marriage. We even like some of the same people. Both of us are going to be avid Hobbit readers. <laughs> both of us are going to sign up to watch the Lord of the Rings. I mean, who would say no to the Lord of the Rings just because Tolkien was a Catholic? We'd read, we'd read uh, Blaise Pascal and G.K. Chesterton. And wouldn't bat an eye at all that they're Catholic and say, well, I can't read Chesterton because he's a Catholic. No, we'd happily read him. Protestants and Catholics both lean on Augustine and Aquinas and countless others. We both affirm the Trinity and we're real serious about it. We both believe that Jesus died for our sins and we even quote the Apostles' Creed in uh, most of our churches. So why are we divided? Where are the big disagreements? And is there any way to bridge the gap? Those are the questions we're going to focus in on tonight. But before we dive into those questions, allow me to make a few caveats. Just as a general theological principle, just if you're going to do theology and you're going to critique somebody else's beliefs, be sure you summarize their beliefs in a way that they would say, you're right, I agree with that, I believe that. You summarized it correctly. Don't just say things that are nonsense, like, well, Catholics worship Mary. Uh, Catholics don't worship Mary. I don't know a single Catholic that would say they worship Mary. Accurately summarize what somebody believes if you're going to critique what they believe. So in, in light of that, in that kind of heart, to be fair and as accurate as possible to what Roman Catholicism teaches, I'm going to lean heavily on the catechism of the Catholic Church. Some of you know it as the Triple uh, C, right? The CCC. I'm going to lean heavily on that. It's the authoritative catechism. 
of Catholicism's beliefs. And I'm going to do my best that anytime I give a summary statement about what Catholics believe, that I'm going to follow it up with the catechism's own words. That way you see it's not an unfair summary, but it's actually me just taking what is written in the Catholic catechism and interacting with it. So uh, if, if there's things in it that you find that you disagree with, maybe you're a Roman Catholic still practicing, or maybe you have a background in Roman Catholicism, and you say, I never believed that. I'm not saying you did. Not every uh, Catholic believes that the Pope is infallible, right? I've, I've met many Catholic friends who would disagree with that. Nevertheless, as we will see, papal infallibility is official Roman Catholic teaching written in the catechism itself. So I just want to say this at the beginning. I want to create a distinction between Roman Catholicism's official teachings and the personal beliefs of individual Catholics. I want to give you freedom to say, I didn't know the Catholic Church taught that. I want to give you freedom to say, I did never believe that. That's okay for you to say that. But I just want you to see what the Catholic Church teaches, what it says that it believes, what it says are its dogmas, its doctrines, its teachings. Now, finally, I need to be clear about my goals. If you are a Catholic, or if you were raised in a Catholic family, I want you to hear very clearly that my goal for tonight is not to skewer you, your family, your upbringing, what you were raised to believe. It's not to do any of that. I'm not going to deny that the Lord might have shown up in an extra special way in your Catholic church when you were growing up. I'm not going to deny that the Lord reached you at moments. In fact, as I was preparing this talk, some of my very good friends who used to be Catholics talked about Christmas Mass and how special it was that they'd eat cookies at Grandma's house and all go attend Mass together, and they loved it, and it's just this fond and warm memory. And I want that memory to remain warm and fond and special because I believe that God's grace is not bound his grace can show up anytime, anywhere. He is an unbound God that can reach you in a Catholic church. He can reach you in your living room. He could reach you anywhere because God's grace is not bound. Nevertheless, even though God's grace is not bound, Catholic theology and gospel-centered theology are very different. And these differences matter. The goal for tonight is simply to explore these differences and then to explain why a divide exists and why a divide must exist. Now, before evaluating the major theological differences uh, between Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism, which I'm going to call a gospel-centered theology from here on out, evangelicalism is gospel-centeredness, it's important to understand how we got here. Where did, the where did the chasm start? Where did we, were we first divided? Now, talking about Catholicism is difficult because, let me just tell you a little secret if you didn't know this, you were all once Catholic. Do you realize that? There is not a single Protestant tradition, Baptist, Anglican, Presbyterian, that could not track its roots back to the time when there was only the Catholic Church. All of our traditions were once Catholic. You see, it really comes down to how you understand the word Catholic. On its own, the word Catholic simply means universal, right? So universal. 
which is what is meant by the Apostles' Creed when it says uh, that we believe the holy Catholic Church. Some of you, if you've ever read the Apostles' Creed, you get to that point and you're like, whoa, 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 I'm not Catholic, I can't read that part. You can and should read that part. Because what it's talking about is the universal body of Christ. It's the church that spans the ages. The church that spans geography. It's the church of all time everywhere. It's the church in Iran, the church in China, the church in the United States, the church of the 1960s, and the church of the first century. That is the church Catholic. It's the people of God proper. Nowadays, however, when we speak about the Catholic church, we tend to have in mind specifically the Roman Catholic Church, which is a branch of Christianity whose doctrines and practices are determined by the Pope, his hierarchy of bishops and priests, and the large collection of canon law and traditions that have accumulated over the years. While it may seem like semantics, the distinction between these two things, Catholic and Roman Catholic, is very important to keep in mind. If we are going to be a thoroughly biblical people, then we have to affirm that we are still for and a part of the Catholic Church, the people of God, one body of Christ. When we say we are not Catholic, what we're meaning is we do not subscribe to Roman Catholic teaching. As gospel-believing Christians, though, we still believe in the holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. We're longing for that day when Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, and all these lines that divide us go away and there is only the church, only the body of Christ. That is our internal hope. We're not, we're not uh, loving these, these divisions. We are longing for the day when the divisions go away and there's only the church founded on the true, pure gospel, communing with Christ together forever and ever. That's what we should want. Now, if you were to travel back in time to any area, era before the 1500s, you'd find that most professing Christians were Catholic, right? So, so you're, not, you're not finding, in the 1500s, you're not finding uh, denominations like Baptist, Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist, uh, Free Will Baptist, Methodist, uh, Presbyterians, Lutherans. You're not finding all that. You're only finding people who, for the most part, would have identified themselves as a part of the Catholic Church. And over the centuries we begin to see that one Catholic church begin to look very differently than what it looked in the first and second centuries. While the early church was accustomed to suffering, persecution, and was passionate about evangelism, the post-Constantine church of the 1500s was almost completely unrecognizable as it became associated with power. You just think about the first century church, and one of the things that should come to mind are the martyrs, the, Colise the Colosseum, people who are dying under Emperor Nero. It's this religion that is marginalized, where people are suffering, they have no political voice. Well, sometime in history, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, becomes a Christian and makes it the one official religion of Christendom, of the Roman Empire. Now it's cool to be a Christian. Now it's politically advantageous for you to be a Christian. And so as Christianity begins to morph, it, become, it becomes more politically and economically uh, re reliable. It becomes more relevant in society. It gradually began to drift, you see, in its comfort. We were best when we were suffering. The church was best when we were suffering. We were best when we bled. We were best when we were burnt. But you give us political power, 
You make the entire empire Christian and you say all of our uh, uh, policies, everything are now going to be looped. Whether it's really Christian or not, we're just going to call it Christian. We're going to make Christianity a cultural thing that's now political thing as well. When that begins to happen, history shows that the church loses its focus. It no longer becomes the strong evangelizing powerhouse that is spreading the gospel through suffering and blood. It becomes a political powerhouse with land and wealth led by a pope whose influence and power were often unmatched by any king. As time went on, the Roman Empire grew weak and was quickly heading towards its demise. The Christianized people of Rome were searching for hope and security. Just imagine if someone were to tell you, it looks like America's about to fall and everything we know about American civilization is just going to go away. Well, that's kind of how these Roman Christians were feeling. Uh, and, and, and they thought they found some kind of hope and security, at least they thought they did, in the Roman bishop Leo the Great, Leo I, whose political savvy pre, uh, preserved the final remains of the Christian Roman society that they knew. There's something about Leo that just protected. He just, he brought back the old days of Rome. He brought back Rome in its highlight. Even though that Roman society was waning, Leo was their strong man that they could hope in. While Leo wasn't the first pope, his rise to supremacy and power illustrates how the pope became supreme. We really see it really with his. I mean, before then, we had a lot of little popes, and it's debated how much power they had. But by the time we get to Leo I, the pope is now seen as supreme. I mean, this is a time of absolute political and national tumult. tumult and uh, uh, turmoil. Leo is seen as the protector. He's the father, the papa, hence the word pope. That's where we get that word from, right? He's a protective father for the people of God. He offered civilized stability, theological identity, and uh, political protection. You've got the barbarians to the west and the Muslim Turks to the east who are eventually going to try to take over the holy lands again and People needed that political strongman. They needed someone that was big and relevant, and Leo fit the bill. When Attila the Hun threatened to invite Rome, it was Leo who marched out to him unarmed and convinced him to leave Rome alone. When the Vandals came and they took over Rome, it was Leo who convinced them not to burn the city to the ground. So naturally, people are looking at Leo and it's like, whatever Leo says happens. He really is our protector. Well, Leo lets it go to his head. And before you know it, Leo begins describing himself as the supreme vicar of Christ. Literally, the stand-in for Jesus. The protector of God's people. The one who leads and protects Christendom in Jesus' absence. Now, I really think Leo was a great guy. But what happened in his good intentions here sparked a negative outcome for generations to come. From there on, the Pope took on a supremacy that no other human on earth, even emperors, could ever claim. People did not even crown a king without the Pope's explicit approval. And if they tried, they were excommunicated and pushed out of the church, literally pushed out of the kingdom of God and threatened with hell itself. By the time we get to the 11th and the 12th centuries, people begin calling the Pope infallible. You know what that word means, right? Infallible, it literally, faultless, flawless, perfect without error. They begin seeing him as someone who leads without error, which only increased his sovereign authority. Now, by the time we get to the 1500s, the Roman Pope 
is at the pinnacle of power. So much so that several successive popes were unashamedly living openly corrupt lives. I know this is a, a dark spot, and when we bring it up, uh, a lot of my Roman Catholic friends say, hey, you've had a lot of pastors fall too. Yes, that's true. At this point in time, we have popes like Pope Julius II and Leo X who were openly, publicly, unashamedly or immoral men who had no reasons to lead a church, let alone become the head of the global church. They're walking around with mistresses and prostitutes and, and walking around publicly and nobody can, nobody can say anything. Now again, I know that's not explicitly Catholic history, that's evangelical history as well, but that's what the 50, 15th uh, centuries look like. Not only were many of the popes openly immoral, but almost anyone could become a priest or a bishop. It just depended how much money you had. Now imagine we were about to hire another big pastor on staff, or we were about to make an elder, right? Uh, we were about to ordain an elder onto staff. And it had nothing to do with his spiritual qualification. We're not looking at 1 Timothy 3. We're not considering his godliness. We're not considering his calling. Instead, we're considering how much money he has in his bank account. That was pretty dominant back in those days. Back then, you could become a priest by buying a church office. Remember, you would want to though, right? You would want to become a pastor because of all the political authority and significance that would come with it. It's a historic practice known as simony, where you buy a church office uh, and you use your wealth to be able to get your foot into the church's leadership. Just imagine if we did that here. And some churches have done that here, and it leads to spiritual chaos. Adding to all this, mysticism's at an all-time high. People's image of Jesus was very dark. If you look at some of the religious art that was coming out in those days, I was going to throw one up, but they were pretty graphic. Um, you'd see hundreds of depictions of Jesus sitting on an exalted throne way, way up high in heaven, while under his feet are people suffering in torment in hell. Catholic professor Mia Machowski says that it, in this shift on art, just this shift in depictions of Jesus, that, that now depict hell and judgment, people were increasingly fixated on the fate of the individual, whether they would be saved or damned. Now, let's just imagine that Stonegate uh, were to build on and we were to do a building project and all over the walls we have depictions of people being sent to hell by Jesus, being chewed on and poked at and stabbed by demons. And every Sunday you're coming to your church and you're seeing, seeing these depictions. It makes sense why people were hypersensitive to making sure that they would be saved from that kind of judgment. There's a real shift there where the focus becomes torment and hell. Jesus is high and exalted and remote and distant. And if you want an example of the outcome of this, you can just read the famous Catholic Marjorie Kemp's description of how she once imagined fire-breathing demons biting and scratching and telling her to take her life. It was... Uh, debated, and it's often debated whether she was just crazy or whether she was actually demon, demonized. But either way, her view of hell and her view of Jesus was consistent with the theology of the church of the day. That was how she saw it. That was how the church depicted it. Jesus slowly but surely slid into the background. It became more distant. It became more cold. And hell took center stage. Now, naturally, with hell as a center stage, the question of the day becomes, how can I avoid hell knowing that I am a sinner who does sinful things? 
How good is good enough to prevent being judged, even a temporary judgment like purgatory? Who wants to go to purgatory? Purgatory is that kind of medium place where all your, your final uh, weaknesses and mistakes and sins are burnt off over a few thousand years, right? So it's that place where you're sanctified before you're allowed into heaven. It's, it's not hell. It's some place in between. It's also not heaven. And so it's a place where you uh, are, endure suffering and you endure all kinds of things to get uh, that, that uh, residual sin worked out of you. Well, the church's answer to this was the indulgences that offered time off of the afterlife punishment of purgatory, either for yourself or your loved one. In essence, buying an indulgence was transferring someone else's wealth of godliness into your spiritual bank account. It doesn't matter that you've been adulterous. It doesn't matter that you've been sinful because the saints have worked up enough merit that they can provide for your bail out of hell, out of purgatory, okay? They, can, they, they have enough that can be transferred to your account. All you have to do is to pay the fee. Pay the fee, buy an indulgence, the Pope will distribute grace from the saintly merits account, and you will get time off of judgment. Now, naturally, when you're selling indulgences like that, things got out of hand. You mean my sin and the consequence, the temporal consequence for my sin can be covered by buying a piece of paper? John Tetzel, one of the most famous indulgence sellers, once claimed that when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And if that wasn't enough to sell you, he'd then add on the heat. He would add, do you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents tormented in hell? Now, naturally, you're hearing that, and, and who's not going to empty their wallets to save their dead wailing parents to get them out of purgatory and into heaven quicker. The spiritual manipulation at the time. Indulgences were not the only way to get sentenced off your purgatory. Christians could pay to touch and look upon relics as their holy artifacts. Things like splinters from the cross, a thorn supposedly from Jesus' crown of thorns, nails people had claimed had been used to crucify Jesus himself. Most famously, the Shroud of Turin, right? Which is the burial cloth that uh, is said to miraculously display the face of Christ. And even artifacts of dead saints like skulls and finger bones and all kinds of things that uh, all these little pieces of saintly people that it, by making a pilgrimage and looking at these relics, you could shave off years of your purgatory. For example, Frederick III, Prince and Elector of Saxony, this is, by, ironically, this prince that I'm about to quote is the same prince who later protected Martin Luther from being killed by the Pope. Frederick III had hundreds, if not thousands, of relics. And here's what he said. He estimated that if a person were to properly venerate each of his relics, they could earn 1,902,202 years off purgatory. 1,902,202 years off purgatory. You pay a fee, you get in, you look, you touch, you venerate each one properly, and you get time off purgatory. Now, if all this is new to you, this is, this is all historically sound. You can go back and look this up in the history books. Even, even Roman Catholicism affirms that this is the way things were. Um, you might be thinking to yourself, why in the world would anyone be duped into doing these things? Well, you have to remember, no one was reading their Bibles. In fact, the Bible wasn't even readable. The Bible was in Latin. 
And most common people were ill-equipped to read Latin if they could read at all. They had to rely on what they were told. They had to, they had to rely on what the priests told them. And, and just as an aside, you need to understand that it's relatively new to have English spoken at a mass. It was up until the 1960s that Latin was explicitly used in mass. 1960s. So the Bible's in Latin. Nobody's reading Latin. And as a result, people are being told things. And people are treating forgiveness as a commodity to be bought and sold rather than a grace given to those who repent. And because most people had a very depressing view of Jesus, seeing him as a distantly cold judge who in his severe holiness would send them to hell in an instant, people were desperate for supplementary insurance. How can we make sure we will not go to hell? Especially with a Savior so cold, so hard, so distant, so remote, so holy as Jesus. Instead of coming to him it was thought that maybe they could come to his more gentle mother. And if they didn't, couldn't really come to her, maybe they could come to her mother, Anne. Or even any one of the saints that could go to Jesus to advocate for them, which explains why people came to venerate, not worship, venerate Mary, where they respect her as a mediator. She is Mary, the mother of divine grace, Mary, the help of Christians. According to Roman Catholic teaching of the day, Jesus was so high, so holy, so unapproachable that people needed a mediator to approach their mediator. And that was the way things were. This is the spiritual climate that John Huss, William Tyndale, and John Wycliffe were born into. It was during this dark age that the Pope reigned supreme when the voice, was sil- the voice of Scripture was silenced, when Jesus seemed far away that Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg's church on October 31st, 1517, and sparked a chasm between the Protestant church and Roman Catholic church that has never been bridged since. I want to speak on behalf of the reformers just for a little bit because it's often said that the reformers were trying to create a church split, that they were trying to build a new church. That is not at all what they said they were trying to do. You read their own writings. They did not see themselves as starting a new branch of Christendom. Instead, they saw it as, as uh, trying to renew the church back to its gospel roots. They believed that the Roman Catholic Church had stopped being Catholic because it stopped teaching and believing the Catholic gospel that had been believed in by all the saints of all ages everywhere. So in their minds, they're not trying to split the church. They're trying to come back to what it really means to be Catholic. And what does it mean to really be a part of the Catholic church? It means to be a gospel-centered people. That's how we become the church of all ages everywhere. I I think of uh, the German reformer Philip Melanchthon. He was uh, a nicer, much, much nicer version of Luther. Those of you that have a a terrible um, taste of Luther in your mouth, he earned it. I get it. Guy was a bit of a jerk, I get it. Uh, I love what he did, but still, yeah. Uh, If you want a better version of Luther's doctrine, read Melanchthon. Melanchthon's much sweeter, okay? Here's what he says. It is one thing to be called Catholic, something else to be Catholic in reality. Those who are truly called Catholic, who accept doctrine of the truly Catholic church, specifically that which is supported by the witness of all time, 
of all ages, which believes what the prophets and the apostles taught, which does not tolerate factions, heresies, and heretical assemblies. So the Reformation was not so much a church split, though it did lead to a split. It was a call for the church to be gospel-centered once again. It openly questioned why the Pope had become the supreme standard of truth and godliness. It openly questioned how things like sacraments, indulgences, and relics became vessels of saving grace. And from those questions, we get the five solas. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratis, grace alone. And soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. Which together summarize the reformers' primary disagreements with Roman Catholics. If you want to know what the primary divide was about, just think about the five solas. For the sake of simplicity, though, we don't have time to walk through each one. We're going to boil down these five statements into two key questions that distinguish gospel-centered Christians from Roman Catholics. Question number one, who is the final authority of truth, life, and godliness? And question number two, how do we become right with God and how do we stay right with God? So how do we become right with him and how do we stay right with him? The answers to these two questions, right? The question about authority and question about salvation, how to get right with him. These are the things that still form the deep chasm that exists today between Roman Catholics and Protestants. So let's ask that first question. In Roman Catholicism, who or what is the final authority of what is true and what is false? What is right and what is wrong? What is godly and what is anathema? That is what is cursed or what is outside the kingdom of God. Now again, some of you are probably going to say, I never believed this when I was growing up in the Roman Catholic Church. You have the freedom to say that. I don't think the Roman Catholic Church preaches these things at every Mass. So I just want to give you, to, to tell you that I understand. However, as we're going to see, these things are going to come from the Catechism itself as Roman Catholic doctra, doctrine. If you go to its foundation, you will find that Roman Catholicism builds its doctrine, its teaching upon a three-part foundation. Scripture, tradition, big T tradition, and the magisterium. We're going to talk about each one. These three, and here's the key, equally form the authoritative standard of truth and error. First, we have scripture. Uh, Protestants accept 66 books as the word of God. So you turn to your table of contents, and those are the, that's what we call the canon, the word of God. These, this, that is the word of God. Genesis is the word of God. Matthew is the word of God. Uh, the gospel of Thomas is not the word of God. You don't find it in those table of contents there. We believe in 66 books. Catholics accept these same 66. So they don't take away any of them. But they've added what most Roman priests would call the deuterocanonical books. That's what we call the Apocrypha, right? So 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Susanna and the Dragon, those, that's the Apocrypha. And those were added, uh, I think, uh, well, they were added back in 1546 at the Council of Trent. Now, just do your history with me for a second. When was the Apocrypha canonized into the Catholic Church? 1546. The Reformation happened before that. In fact, several years before that. And they're asking questions like, wait a second. Where in the Bible does it say that we should make atonement on behalf of the dead? Where in the Bible does it say 
that we should pray for the sins of the dead to be forgiven and make sacrifices on their behalf, i.e. buying indulgences, so that they'll then be set free from judgment. Well, there's nowhere in the Old and New Testaments that talk about that. 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verse 30 and 45 does, though. So naturally, 2 Maccabees needs to be added to the canon. So now it's divinely authoritative and divinely inspired scripture. So now we have a way to back this. And my friends, 1546, Apocrypha added. Reformation happened much, much sooner before that. Much sooner before that. Augustine's not reading the Apocrypha, right? So just kind of showing that there is a difference even in how we even view scripture because for us it'd be the 66 books that we call the word of God, the canonized scripture. For them it's the word of God plus the Apocrypha. Next to scripture. So there's scripture, and then there's what we call big T tradition. Now, for us, in the early church, tradition referred to the summaries of faith. For example, the creeds and confessions. Who doesn't like the Apostles' Creed? That's a great thing to read, right? Or Athanasian Creed, or the Nicene Creed. Those are all great things. Irenaeus called some of these things the canon of truth. And and this canon of truth was helpful in, in helping summarize what Christians believe. We have nothing against tradition in that light. However, as Irenaeus said, this canon of truth is directly tied to written doctrines of Scripture. So that being said, you can take the Apostles' Creed, and even though it's not Scripture, you can track its scriptural DNA back to the actual Scriptures themselves, right? Athanasian Creed, the same. The Nicene Creed, the same. So we're, we're saying yes to tradition. We're not against using tradition. As gospel-centered people, we believe that it is important to make sure that our interpretation and summaries about the Word of God and that our practices that we are claiming to be from Scripture fits into the larger picture of what the universal church has believed of all ages. Let me just tell you something. If your doctrinal stance, for example, your belief about the Trinity drastically differs from the sound doctrine that spanned the ages, you're probably wrong, right? So, I mean, if your, tr- your view of the Trinity veers from what we find in the Nicene Creed, for example, this is what Christians have believed about the Trinity for all ages. You're not gonna come up with some new take on the Trinity. One of my professors in, in, uh, in seminary used to tell me, hey, friends, if there's one thing you don't want to win the creativity award in heaven for, it's in making theology. So we're all about tradition. Why? Because we don't want the creativity award. We want to be faithful to what the whole church has taught. So as far as tradition goes, we have no problem with tradition. We believe that tradition is important. We believe that it summarizes uh, Scripture's teaching well. Um, but it's secondary to the Word of God. It's not the Word of God. It's not authoritative as the Word of God. We don't place it on the same level. But there's even a, a deeper problem than that. We in Roman Catholic, Catholicism are not using tradition in the same way. We're saying tradition is the summaries of the faith that can be founded upon the teaching of the Word of God. In Roman Catholicism, however, the definition of tradition takes on a totally different sense. As one Roman Catholic defines it, tradition is the unwritten words of the apostles and their unwritten traditions. Because these additional words and traditions were not written, they may not, as one author says, be found in sacred scriptures and may not be concluded with certainty from the scriptures alone. 
And so, certain doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church were never written in the Bible, but they're just as authority, uh, authoritative as the Scripture. Take, for example, the doctrines of Mary. Specifically, Mary's immaculate conception, right? This idea that Mary was sinless. We don't find that anywhere in the Bible. What about uh, Mary's uh, perpetual virginity, the idea that she remained a, a virgin even after Jesus' birth, that she remained this holy, sinless virgin forever? Or what about Mary's assumption, the idea that Mary was transported into heaven, body and soul, that she's, you can't find her, like Jesus, you can't find her body anywhere on earth. Where do, do, do we find all these things? Well, it's not in the Bible because it's not written, but it is found in tradition. And because it's found in tradition, it's just as authoritative as anything you would find in Scripture, according to Roman Catholicism. So we have Scripture, and then right next to it, at the same level, we have tradition. Third, there is the magisterium. magisterium. In Roman Catholicism, the magisterium is the teaching office held by the Pope, and his council of archbishops. In this council, it is the Pope who holds, listen to the words from the catechism, full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. That's a lot of power. In addition to having supreme power and universal power, the Pope enjoys, here it is in the Catechism again, infallibility in virtue of his office when he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine that pertains to faith and morals. So uh, my Catholic friends would say, well, he's infallible, but only when he speaks on, uh, uh, about faith and morals. Can I ask a, just a real simple question? What doesn't pertain to faith and morals? I'm not sure I can pick a restaurant without my faith and morals coming into play. I'm not trying to make fun of the thing. I'm just saying this is unbound, unlimited power. Infallibility. When he speaks, it is infallible. According to the catechism, his words, here's what it says, extend as far as the deposit of divine revelation itself. Practically, this means that when a pope speaks in his official capacity, his words carry the same authority as the Bible, as the word of God. As I've said before, not every Roman Catholic believes that the pope is infallible. They don't necessarily believe that. However, this is what is being taught in Roman Catholicism. This is the official Roman Catholic teaching. So, who or what is the final authority regarding life, godliness, and truth? For Roman Catholicism, it's the infallible scriptures, the infallible tradition, those unwritten words and rules and traditions and teachings, and it's the infallible Pope. For gospel-centered people, however, our final authority is sola scriptura, scripture alone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter how much uh, land you own, how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you're Jimmy Needham or Ryan Kearns or Rodney Hobbs. Our authority is Scripture alone. Their authority that they get behind this pulpit is based on Scripture alone. It's not inherent to themselves. We don't say Jimmy's infallible, do we? We say the Word of God is infallible. I mean, Jimmy's pretty close to being infallible, but he's not infallible. <laughs> Got you, bro. He's not infallible. We believe that the only infallible authority that we have is the Scriptures alone. 
We actually think that popes and Catholic tradition can be fallible. They can make mistakes. They can be flawed and fault, fault, filled with faults. But the Word of God is not. The Word of God is perfect and infallible by nature that it is the Word of God. The theopneustros, the Word breathed by God Himself. This is why we must not, as Luther warned, make the word of men equal to the word of God. No word of man is equal to the word of God. I've got great news for you. As the infallible word of God, scripture alone is enough to teach, to reprove, to correct, to train in righteousness. It's because of scripture alone that you may be competent and equipped for every good work. It's because of all those things that scripture is that you can become a holy servant of God. According to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, God has already granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Just to be blunt about it, we believe we don't need the Pope to tell us what's true. We believe we don't need tradition to tell us what's true. Why? Because according to Scripture's own testimony, God has already granted to us all those things. 2 Peter 1, 3, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Read that whole section in context of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. How do we come to the knowledge of Christ? Through the holy word of God. Prophecy that no man made, but that every prophet spoke as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who is our authority? The Holy Spirit and his word written. That's it. That's our authority. So that's the first major disagreement. If this first major disagreement between gospel-centered Christians and Roman Catholics centers on the topic of authority, the second revolves around the topic of salvation. Here's the big question. How do we become right with God, and how do we stay right with God? That's a huge question. Out of all the differences that we have with Roman Catholicism. This is the linchpin disagreement that has divided us. A gospel, as gospel-centered Christians, we believe that we are justified through faith in Christ, that he, and that he is our mediator between God and mankind. Now, to be fair, most Roman Catholics would say yes and amen with that statement. The problem is, we're using the same words, but we don't mean the same thing by them. It's an important theological lesson here. Just because somebody uses the same vocabulary you do doesn't mean they have the same definition. For one thing, we disagree about what it means to be justified. Gospel-centered Christians define justification as God's definitive and gracious act of legally declaring us not guilty. And not only that, he counts Jesus' righteousness as our own. And it's because he counts Jesus' righteousness as ours that we are not guilty. Do you hear the good news of the gospel of justification? You are declared definitively at this moment, if you believe in Jesus, not guilty. It's not a process. It's a one-time verdict that has ongoing ramifications. The moment you believe in Jesus, the verdict is declared not guilty. Forever. Yay. Now, it's on that amazing truth that everything else in the Christian life is built. 
we believe that it's because of our faith that God has justified us and that we are not guilty, that everything else comes. First comes justification, and then comes what? Sanctification. Are those two things the same thing? No. Justification is God's immediate definitive verdict that we are not guilty. Sanctification is the ongoing process by which we gradually become holy and obedient to the Lord's commands. Justification, just to be clear, enables and leads to sanctification, but they are not the same thing. To use an analogy, justification is the root of the tree. Sanctification is the fruit. We don't need to get those two things mixed up. You start treating the fruit like a root and you're going to misunderstand the whole tree. Justification is the root. Sanctification is the fruit. Roman Catholicism, on the other hand, treats justification entirely differently. According to the Council of Trent's decree on justification, justification is not only, again, this is from the Council of Trent, decree of justification, justification is not only the forgiveness of sin, but also sanctification and the renewal of the inner person. Do you see what's happened there in that declaration? Justification, sanctification have been melded together. Not just justification, but sanctification also. That's what justification. Now in this, they've merged it together into the same action. And the difference is important. If justification stands as a root and sanctification as a fruit, if justification and sanctification are connected but distinct, then we can say that we are saved by grace alone and faith alone. But if justification and sanctification are the same thing, then you are not just saved by faith, but by the sanctifying works that are required of you as well. Faith and works. You see the danger there? When you treat these two things as the same and not distinct, bad things happen. Salvation would be dependent on faith and works, not just faith. The problem is, is we are a sola fide, sola gratis people. We are faith alone. Speaking of grace and faith, Catholics speak of grace and faith. They're not against it by any means. In a gospel-centered understanding, grace is the free, undeserved gift of God that comes to us through faith alone. And then there's faith, which Scripture describes as a childlike dependency, hear that word, dependency, and confidence in Christ. The whole point of faith from a gospel-centered perspective is that it is not a work. Anybody know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you have been saved. That's right. Let's make this interactive. By faith. And then it goes on to say that it is not by works. That's right. That's the, that's the, definitive, uh, the definition of faith. That it is not a work. It is faith. However, from the Roman Catholic position, faith is trust. But not only trust. It is also action. Faith is action. The catechism says that faith... Is, and this is the catechism again. Uh, you, you should have it there in your notes. The catechism says that faith is when the human intellect and will cooperate with divine grace. From a gospel-centered standpoint, faith is dependency. We make ourselves like children and say that we are helpless and we need Jesus to do something for us. From a Roman Catholic position, faith is cooperation with God. There's a big difference between dependency and cooperation. One says, I can't do anything. One says, I'll do my part. And it's a devastating difference. 
the ramifications of it are huge. Now, just to be clear, we gospel-centered people are not saying that faith has nothing to do with action. We do believe that we act out of faith. Faith, again, is the, the root, and our action is the fruit, right? So faith pours into our action. But we're not saying that those actions are justifying saving faith. So me coming to church might be coming out of faith, but it is not justifying faith in and of itself. We're not arguing that. But for Roman Catholics, however, those two things are the same. Justifying action, justifying faith, one and the same. Huge ramifications. Take, for example, the doctrine of repentance. In Scripture, repentance is the other side of faith, right? So people ask the apostles, what must we do to be saved? And the apostles say, repent and believe, right? So it's the same action, right? In faith, we turn to God. Repentance turns away from sin simultaneously. So faith and repentance is the same thing. If anything, repentance is faith displaying itself in contrition, in, in knowing and acknowledging that your sin was rebellious and you need to leave it. In the Roman Catholic position, though, repentance is a set of actions that a person can do to pay for their sins. Martin Luther was once reading the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate, all of you guys know what the Latin Vulgate is, right? It's the standard, at, at least at the time of the 1500s, is the standard Bible uh, that the Roman Catholics were, were using, right? It was the Bible translated by Jerome into Latin. He was reading Matthew 4, 17, and he noticed, and he was studying Greek at the same time, and he noticed that Jerome had translated uh, the phrase to say, do penance, penatium agate, right? Instead of repent. So, so do penance instead of repent or be repentant. There's a big difference between those two things. And suddenly he began to see that this is where that whole idea of doing penance came from. Which, from a Roman Catholic, uh, from the, according to the cate Roman Catholic Catechism, involves the sacrament of confessing one's sin and then fulfilling a prescribed list of repentance act, repentant acts, such as making an offering, performing works of mercy, serving a neighbor, or committing acts of self-denial. And then according to the Catechism, again, this is Catechism 1459, you do these acts of penance, why? In an effort to make satisfaction for or expiate your own sins. There's the cooperation. So to summarize all that's been said, gospel-centered position is that faith is simple trust and confidence in Christ. For Roman Catholics, it's cooperation. We believe that it is Jesus and Jesus alone. Roman Catholics do believe it's faith and works. Faith and doing these things that faith requires. And just to be clear, we were not the ones who called foul on this first. We, uh, the reformers, I, I say we as the reformers, the reformers said, hey, we believe it's in Jesus alone by faith alone and grace alone. The Council of Trent answered that statement in Canon 12. In the Council of Trent, Canon number 12, here's what it says. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else, so it's not anything else, then confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that, this is, that it is this confidence alone, there's the faith alone, that justifies us, let him be anathema. In other words, if you believe that you are saved because you believe in Jesus alone, you're saved by faith alone and by grace alone, you cannot be in the Roman Catholic Church. You're anathema, according to the Council of Trip, Canon 12. 
So we, agree, we disagree about justification. We disagree about the definition and the role of faith, but we also disagree about who can be counted as a mediator. Both gospel-centered Christians and Roman Catholics believe that Jesus is our mediator. We agree on that. The difference is, is we don't agree that he is our one and only mediator. In fact, in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a bit of a spiritual hierarchy that bridges heaven and humans. As the, uh, first, there's Christ, right? And then we have Mary, who se- serves as a, in the words of the catechism, the co-mediator alongside Christ. As the sinless mother of God, she is the helper of Christians and hands out grace to God's people alongside her divine son. And though she is unique, she's not the only one that can help you. There's other saints as well, lesser saints, who can intercede for you to the Father on your behalf, half offering their own merits in your time of need. So that said, the rosters of mediator, uh, mediators in the Roman Catholic Church is Jesus, the mediator, Mary, the mediatrix is what, what her, her title is, and the saints are intercessors. On earth, we have the Pope, who is the steward of grace, and the ordained bishops and priests and deacons under his authority, who dispense grace through the seven sacraments. And we're not going to get into the uh, theology of sacraments completely, but the seven sacraments include baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, which is considered to be the center of life in the church, penance, doing penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and marriage. Each sacrament, when, or, when administered by an officially ordained Roman Catholic priest, gives saving grace to the recipient. As the catechism says, the faithful are born anew by baptism. Official sacrament of baptism, strengthened by the sacrament of confirmation, and receive the Eucharist, the food of eternal life. By means of these sacraments, still reading the catechism, of Christian initiation, they thus receive in increasing measure the treasures of divine life. And where do these sacraments become vessels of saving grace? In the church. Which is why we get the decree. Extra ecclesium nulla salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Because it's only in the church that you can take the sacraments. It's only by taking the sacraments that you get saving grace. It's only by getting that saving grace through the sacraments that have been sanctified by the hierarchy of priests and mediators that you can then be made right with God. So in many ways, as scholar de Chirico says, the church becomes another Christ, another mediator. As such, it is an extension of his incarnation. Uh, scholar Greg Allison, one of my old professors, he says, the church as the body of Christ and the sacrament of the intimate union with, uh, and the sacrament of the intimate union with God and humanity shares the mediatory office of Jesus Christ, whose incarnation she extends. Let me just put that in plain English. The church is Christ on earth. It shares Jesus' mediatorial office. Now, this view of the church is what makes excommunication so dangerous and so bad, right? Because if you're excommunicated from the church, you're cut off from Christ himself. As gospel-centered Christians, we disagree on several points, though I gotta say, I, I fully appreciate the way Catholicism treats church as important, as indispensable. As Protestants, we tend to treat it as not that important. My friends, that is an overreaction to that. 
The church is immensely important in God's redemptive story and for your sanctification. However, what we're not going to claim is that the church is another mediator beside Christ. We need no other mediators. We have Christ alone, solus Christus, the one and only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, 5. We do not need Mary. We do not need the saints in heaven or the Pope to mediate for us. We have direct access to God as Ephesians 3.12, Hebrews 4.16, and 10.19 claim we can not just approach the throne, we can confidently approach the throne. Now, there's much to appreciate there. But one of the things that I, I need to make clear is, as the church, what we're claiming in the gospel-centered position is that we are ambassadors of Christ the King. We're not claiming to be a mediator of Christ. In Protestant faith, the church is the outcome of salvation, right? So you get saved, you're reconciled to God. A natural result that should come from being reconciled to God is a desire to be reconciled with his people as well, right? Someone who doesn't want reconciliation with God's people, I'm questioning, have you actually been reconciled with God? Because that is a natural ramification. So in Protestant faith, the church is an outcome of salvation. But in the Roman Catholic faith, it is the means of salvation, that's a step too far for us. While we agree that the church is the body of Christ, we cannot claim to stand in the place of Christ himself. We as a church do not grant salvation. And to think it does would be to confuse the bride with the bridegroom, the body for the head, the sheep for the shepherd. And it's because of that that we confess that there is salvation in no one else, not even Stonegate. There is salvation in no one else, not even any church. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. So I've said there's a lot to appreciate about the Roman Catholic Church. I actually uh, enjoy quite a bit that my Catholic friends believe. I love their emphasis on a holy life. The importance of confessing to one another. That's amazing. I love that. I love that they, they uh, confess sins and they're vulnerable together. I don't practice confession in the same way. I, I don't agree with their practice of confession, I agree with the theology of the need for confession. Um, I love, I love, love, love their importance of Christ's body in his church. However, we disagree on these two points of authority and salvation, and because of that, we cannot claim unity with Roman Catholic doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church preaches a very different gospel than the one we find in Scripture. Now, given this fact, someone might ask whether a Roman Catholic can be saved. My answer to this question is the same if you were to ask me if a Southern Baptist or a Presbyterian can be saved. If a Southern Baptist can be saved, so can a Catholic. How are they saved? By faith in Christ. Confidence solely in his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. If they believe in that, if they believe and trust in Jesus fully, they are saved no matter what denomination or, or church tradition they come from. They're saved. Now, I, I personally know many Catholics who would say, I believe in Jesus alone. I don't put my trust in the mass. I put my trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone. But, <clears throat> as I tried to show, while many Catholics may sincerely believe the gospel, there's still many others who are not being taught the gospel explicitly. I feel like if you become a Christian in the Roman Catholic Church, it is not because of the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, but despite it. 
God is not bound. He can save even people in the Roman Catholic Church. So, giving these differences, if my voice holds out for the next two minutes, how can we love our Catholic friends and simultaneously be clear, faithful, and firm on our doctrinal distinctions? I'm going to give you three points. First, be clear about Jesus. Arguments about Mary are rarely productive. Don't start there. You're gonna, if you go to your Catholic friends and say, let me just tell you why Mary's not infallible, why Mary's not immaculate. Let me just tell you why the Pope is wrong. If you start there, you're going to completely miss the view. Your goal is not to give people a clear and accurate view of the Pope and Mary. Your goal is to give them a clear picture of Jesus. Let me just tell you, there's lots of lost people who don't believe that Mary was sinless. There's lots of lost people who don't agree with the Pope. Your goal is not to shift their focus or to shift their, or make them question all that. Your goal is to give them a clear picture of Jesus. The clearer they see Jesus, the more clearly they will see everyone else. So don't pick fights about Mary and the Pope. Be explicit about my one and only concern is that you see Jesus clearly. Number two, preach the better, better gospel of direct access to Jesus. Let me, just, let me just bask in the gospel here for a moment. We don't just have access to Jesus. We have direct access to Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. As, as I mentioned before, the idea that we needed other, other mediators, whether it's Mary and the saints, all this came from a distorted view of Jesus. Over the centuries, Roman Catholicism is preaching this, this Jesus who's distant and unapproachable, and it becomes easier to appeal to human mediators, human saints, than to the holy, divine God-man. But for us, we have a different view of Jesus. Yes, he's supremely holy. Yes, he's the exalted king of all things, who is seated in power at the right hand of God. But his holiness and his exaltation has not made him inaccessible. If anything, his exaltation has made him more accessible. That's the beauty of it. That's what we need to preach. Just by way of analogy, think back on your grandmother and trying to explain to your grandmother back in the 1950s the process of making a phone call in 2023. In the 1950s, if I wanted to call my dad, I'd first call the operator. Operator, patch me through the Philip Jackson. Okay, one second, and then next thing you know, I get Philip Jackson on the phone. Nowadays, if I want to talk to my dear sweet dad, simply pick up my phone and call his cell anytime I want. It's great. No operators, no mediators, no operators needed. The, the ability to approach my dad on a phone call is simply as easy as me pulling my phone from my pocket and hitting one button now. He's on my favorites list. Dad, if you're watching this, you're officially on my favorites list. <clears throat> I can just hit one button and call him directly. If anything... We, we need to see that's this direct access that's so easy that he's opened it up. Now, think about it in terms of our relationship with God. Once upon a time, we needed priestly operators and tabernacles to patch us through to a relationship with God. Once upon a time, you had to approach the altar and the basin and the holy of holies and sacrifices and priests wearing white priestly clothes But when Jesus died, God gave you his cell phone number. 
and said, call me anytime. No operators needed. That's the beauty of the gospel that we have as Christians. That's what separates us. That's what makes our gospel message better and sweeter than anything we find in Catholicism. Catholicism teaches that a person has to go through the checkpoints of the sacraments, the priests, the popes, and Mary, who will open up the door of Jesus for us. My friends, the gospel says, come on in. The door is already open. That's the thing I just want my Catholic friends to see is the same Jesus who once said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, has not changed. He's the same Jesus who now rules at the right hand of God. Exalted though he is, he is still the gentle and lowly Savior who invites you in. You don't need anybody else. You don't need anything else. You don't need to cooperate. You need him and him alone. And as the author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Finally, we'll end here. <clears throat> Model a childlike faith. So many of us like to talk about what we do. Even at we as Protestants, we fall into the temptation of trying to contribute to our own righteous status. We like to have a stake in it, don't we? We like to say that we contribute something. But my friends, the gospel message is helplessness. Helplessness is humiliation. This is what Jesus wants for us. When he walked the earth, he picked up a little small child and made him the model of faith. He told everyone who was listening, he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. His point is that we all must become humble and dependent like children. It's a very adult, grown-up thing to think that we can cooperate with God. It's a very adult, grown-up thing to think that we could do penance and expiate our own sins. It's childlike faith that says, I can't. One of the things that you hear from a Christian most often is, I can't. I can't. It's a burden too heavy for me. But he can. Roman Catholicism is going to preach and teach to you a righteousness that says, your righteousness, look at the sacraments, look at what you do, look at your works. For us as gospel people, we look to not a thing, we don't look to ourselves, we look to a person, Jesus. Jehovah Teskenu, God my righteousness. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, the great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and bleeds for me. Give me nothing else but Jesus. If you're a Roman Catholic tonight and you're listening to this and this talk, I hope, has made you reconsider some things, I just want you to hear the door's open. Christ has given you direct access to himself. And there is much joy on the other side of that door. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we are saved by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. We thank you that Christ busts down the door, that he is our high priest, gentle and lowly, 
who sympathizes with our weaknesses and yet still calls us to confidently come near, to approach the throne of grace where we can find help in our time of need. Thank you, Jesus, for that gospel. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.